This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. Now, you may know how I feel about experts. Experts are indispensable to solving problems like the COVID pandemic, but we've also seen experts overstep their bounds at a lot of times during this pandemic. Expertise is an input to good decision-making, but it's not the end to decision-making. You can't just follow the science. You have to decide what you care about and what your goals are so you can let the science lead you to where you're trying to go. Those are decisions of values that have to be layered in on top of the expertise, on top of the science, and they should be made with expert input, but they're not fundamentally up to the experts. And yet, cost-benefit analysis is hard, even for people who know their goals and values and consider the evidence with an open mind. Putting all of that together to come to a policy recommendation or to come to a recommendation about personal behavior is its own kind of expertise. Consider a financial advisor. Your financial advisor can't tell you what your financial goals should be. But once you tell your goals to your advisor, you rely on that advisor to tell you which choices will help achieve those goals. Their job is to use expertise to help you put your stated goals into practice. And for COVID, I think a lot of people have been looking for something similar because people have complex bundles of preferences. They don't want to get sick. They don't want their kids to get sick. They certainly don't want to die. They also want their kids in school. They value the importance of life in human society, and they want to go to church, to the office, to restaurants, to parties. They want normalcy on the streets and busyness keeping people out of trouble. They have ideas about how they weight those things and what they want to maximize, but taking the fire hose of expert opinion and figuring out how to plug that into a preference set is hard, even if you can strip out the experts' value judgments from their factual analyses. And so there's people who have taken on a role like that, helping like-minded members of the public synthesize expert opinion and figure out what to do about COVID, what they should want the government to do about COVID. A particularly influential writer on that topic is David Leanhart. He's a senior writer at the New York Times, and he writes the popular The Morning Newsletter. And he's here with me today. Hi, David. Hi, Josh. I should note here that David also used to be my boss. I spent two years as a correspondent for The Times, writing for The Upshot, the data and economics section that David founded and was overseeing at the time. Uh, It's really good to be talking with you again, David. You too, Josh, but no one is ever really your boss. I think we know that. <laughs> uh, well, that's a, that's a different podcast. Uh, so uh, how did you end up in this role as a sort of expertise synthesizer? In many ways, it's what I've always found appealing about journalism. Um, my sort of immediate background is as an economics writer, as you know, and just alluded to. And um, I got fascinated in economics. I'm not an economist by training. I'm, I'm not anything by training. I don't have a graduate degree. And I spent, really, I've spent most of the last 20 years writing about economics for the Times. And when the pandemic came along, um, I, uh, relatively early in it, moved into this job in which I was writing the morning newsletter. And it became clear quite quickly, or even immediately, that this was the story. It was not only big and important, the way the financial crisis was, or 9-11 was, or a war would be. But even more so than any of those, it was affecting everyone's everyday life in a dominant way. And so given the huge amount of reader interest in it and, and my own personal interest and just its importance to the state of the world, I basically set about doing a ton of reporting, um, interviewing epidemiologists and virologists and doctors and, and others, and trying to get a handle on, on the pandemic. 
But I, I mean, it, it's not just a matter of your interest, right? I mean, there's, and maybe asking you to be a little immodest here, but it's also about other people's interest in you. I'm, I'm interested in what you think about how you became someone that people were really looking to on this, because there are so many people covering this. There are so many people writing about this at big outlets. And there, there's something that you're doing that is connecting with some set of people. It's also, it, it's annoying a, n- a number of people, and we'll get to that later. But I, I'm wondering what you make, basically, of the influence that you've obtained here. I do think you're right. It, it, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to answer that question. But with that caveat and my obvious lack of objectivity on that question, I, I would mention two things. The Times built this massive audience for this newsletter. And a little more than two years ago, the Times basically decided, wait a second, we have this enormous audience. I mean, it it's possible that it's the largest daily audience in English language journalism anywhere. No one's ever officially ranked it. And we should be investing in that. And so what they did was they built a team. They asked me to come over from my old job and and be the lead writer on this newsletter. And it's not that our pandemic coverage created the audience for this newsletter. Um, For the most part, the audience was already there. And the Times decided, very consciously modeling this after the Daily, the podcast, um, that it wanted to create kind of another front page for the institution. So A.G. Salzberger, the publisher, sometimes likes to say that the New York Times used to have one front page, the print front page. And now it, it arguably has four or five. The print front page is still quite important. The home screen uh, on your phone, or for people who still look at desktop on there, you can count that as one or two. The daily, obviously. And then this becomes the morning newsletter, becomes the next front page for the Times. So I think a lot of it is that. And I guess the second thing is, uh, look, you and I did this together when we worked on the upshot. Uh, so I know you share this general outlook. I think that a lot of journalism out there, and not just journalism, a lot of public information, is more complicated than it needs to be. And it speaks too much in the language um, of academia or of wonks or of experts. It sort of tries to come off as more intelligent by speaking in the language of a relatively small number of people who do this stuff. Um, it views simple explanations as being dumbed down when, when that's actually simple explanations are not dumbed down. Um, and that's really what I try to do. And so I think I try to approach a bunch of these subjects the same way our readers would. If I read something, and I'm happy to get into examples, I think there's a good one about vaccines. If I read something and I think, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. If I don't understand it, I assume that others also don't understand it. And I basically go out and report it and try to solve my own confusion and then put that in front of readers. And I do think that resonates with with some number of people. I think also there is, and let me know if you disagree with me, but I think there is the step that I describe at, at the top there, basically, where you're, where you're helping people sort through this information and not just you know simplify it and help them figure out, understand it, but help them figure out how to weigh things against each other. Um, and some of that can be done in the form of giving people inputs like, you know, well, this policy has this benefit and this cost, and depending on how you feel about those things, then that should affect how you feel about the policy. But sometimes it's going farther than that, right? It's, I mean, I, I you know, just in, you know, on uh, this morning, we're taping this on, on Tuesday, um, you're talking about the cost-benefit analysis of state mask mandates as governors are deciding when to lift them. And you say, you know, with, with cases plummeting, the removal of statewide mask mandates will probably do more good than harm. And so there's, there's an underlying implication there about somebody's preference set, right? And I think, you know, we can talk in a moment about when you're making policy. But first, I mean, starting at the level of the individual, what sort of assumptions are you making about what people value 
in order to arrive at a conclusion that, you know, a policy change is going to create more good than harm? I would argue it's a it's a relatively unobjectionable assumption, but I also acknowledge that there are people who object to it. So, um, <laughs> I mean, to me, I think the key assumption there is that we are solving for total well-being of society. And as your question is suggesting, Josh, not everyone has the same view about what total well-being of society is, right? But I think even in a kind of broad, in, in the broad areas of consensus about what is total well-being of, of society, there are things we can agree on, right? As you mentioned in your introduction, like life is better than death. Health is better than illness. Learning is better than ignorance. And so even if we have disagreements about things like risk tolerance, and and these are hard questions, right? I mean, I, I know that some people would never, you know, would say, well, it's never worth it to lose a life. But as you know well, that's not actually true. We would not, to save a single life, we would not deprive all American children of a school year. We just wouldn't. And we can pretend otherwise, but we wouldn't. We could easily save um, thousands of lives, tens of thousands of lives every year if we made all automobiles illegal, but we're not going to do that. So there are really hard trade-offs. But I think when I try to think in general that what we care about is we care about health and well-being, um, we care about learning, I think that's what I'm thinking about. And I do think the way in which as a society, and I know we'll get to this more later, I do think one thing that certain parts of society have struggled with is they've essentially been trying to solve for COVID above all else. And they've been asking themselves, would this reduce the number of COVID cases? Would it reduce the amount of COVID illness? And I understand why that's appealing, but that can't actually be our highest goal. Our highest goal has to be, is this going to increase the well-being of society? Is it going to reduce overall illness? If there was a policy out there that caused four people to die while saving two lives from COVID, four people die from other things, we wouldn't want that policy. And trade-offs are rarely that clear, but that's the kind of thinking that I try to bring to it. And so as you're going through that process, I mean, obviously there are some places where the once you lay out the numbers, the trade-off is obvious in the sense that almost everybody would have the same preference about the trade-off. But the, there are also places where it's not obvious. And I think one implication in your writing is that there are certain areas of public policy uh, where policymakers have made decisions that do not align with what public preferences about trade-offs would tend to be. I think in particular that we've made some choices around education that are going to lead to worse outcomes than people would have, you know, if people had full insight into what the effects were going to be, they would have wanted different policy choices. And I'm just wondering how you how you draw those conclusions. Are you looking at public opinion data? How are you developing a finer grained view of what the public really wants out of life? Because I mean, it, it is these enormous questions about what is good and what is important that fundamentally have to be inputs into these questions, both about public policy and then also about individual behaviors, which I think is something people are also looking for advice on. And so, I mean, is there something beyond, you know, where it's like, you know, really the cases where the trade-off is so clear that it's really obvious? How are, what's your process for developing a view on what people want out of those things? I'm not sure I have a formal process, but it's a really thoughtful question. So let me kind of see if I can get to a, an answer and you'll tell me if I've missed what you mean. But I think this was a really hard situation before we had vaccines. I think before we had vaccines, it was enormously difficult to weigh things like how valuable is it to keep kids out of school? And I think that's part of the reason why we kept kids out of school before we had 
vaccines. Some of it was we also didn't know quite how big a role schools were playing in the transmission of the virus. Historically, schools have played a huge role in the transmission of viruses. The most recent horrible global pandemic a century ago was particularly hard on young people. So I think when we started this, there were a lot of reasons to close schools. It turned out that COVID has been different. And in retrospect, there were fewer reasons. But I think those calls were really hard in the moment. And I think even if knowing what we know about COVID now, if we did not have vaccines, they would still be extremely hard calls. I think many of them would be close. I think it would be really difficult. Vaccines have fundamentally changed this conversation because they are an example of something, as you just cited, where the cost-benefit analysis strikes me as not a close call, right? Like, what's the cost? Um, you have to spend some time going to get a shot. You might be sick for a day or two. Um, I don't want to dismiss that sick for a day or two totally for people who don't have jobs that are as flexible as our jobs. I, I recognize that can be significant. So there's some cost. Uh, there seem to be virtually no side effects beyond maybe a day or two of being sick. Uh, I'm even willing to say there's some long-term uncertainty because we don't have people who've had 30 years of COVID in their system. I mean, the benefits are um, it can save your life. It can keep you out of the hospital. It can keep you from having long COVID. It can keep you from killing someone in your family uh, who's more vulnerable by passing on the virus. So given the universal availability of vaccines, I think that really changes the calculation. And I think we then have to think about things, okay, what are the costs of the, the huge disruption to continuing pandemic living? There are huge costs to kids in terms of learning. Those costs we now know empirically fall the hardest on the kids who already are most likely to struggle the most in school. They are widening inequalities between richer and poorer kids. They are widening inequalities between, on the one hand, white and Asian kids, and on the other hand, Latino and black kids. We know that drug overdoses in this country have soared. It's almost certainly that the pandemic isolation has played a role. We know that suicide attempts among adolescent girls have really risen. We know that murders have risen and other violent crime. The pandemic seems to play a role there. And so by any number of ways, I mean, as Matt Iglesias says, bad behavior of all kinds is on the rise and the timing looks a lot like it's the pandemic. And so when you combine that with the fact that vaccines are universally available for anyone over five, that the virus is extremely mild, overwhelmingly for people under five, and you're then looking at, okay, are we going to impose really significant costs on nearly all of society? And what do we get in exchange for that? And this isn't nothing. We reduce substantially illness among people who are refusing to take the vaccine, and they still have value, even though they're making this irrational choice. And then probably even more difficult, we would reduce illness among people who have taken the vaccine, but who are immunocompromised. And I acknowledge there's a trade-off there, um, not just immunocompromised, but also people in their 70s and 80s and 90s. But I think when you just look at it and you think about the harm that these that the disruption and isolation has done to hundreds of millions of people, it's really hard to argue that we should be shutting down society now, given those costs, in order to protect immunocompromised and very elderly people who, by the way, are vulnerable to viruses, not just COVID. So when we had this choice before, we didn't shut down society to protect them. We should look for other ways to protect them. Yeah. 
So one of the main responses that you'll tend to hear to the sort of case that you just laid out there, especially right at this specific moment, uh, is that, you know, we're seeing thousands of deaths a day. That, you know, it's it's up there with some of the previous highs of death rates during this pandemic. And so basically, you know, how, how can you say that at this point uh, when the death rates are so high? And I think, you know, that there are some technical questions I want to get into in a moment about the shape of the Omicron wave and what the numbers today tell us about likely numbers in six weeks. But there's also a, a moral question embedded in there that you got at, uh, which is basically death rates are so much higher now among people who've chosen not to be vaccinated. Uh, death rates remain and have been very low among children through the entire pandemic. So it's not that, you know, even though there are young children who cannot be vaccinated, that is not the locus of the death surge that we're seeing. The locus is adults who have chosen not to be vaccinated. Does the fact that the vaccine is available and these people decline it, does that affect the moral calculus? And, you know, Jared Polis, the governor of Colorado, will say that's what makes this not an emergency anymore. We have the tools available. It's tragic if people don't use them, but that's not the moral obligations of the public are different there than they are otherwise. On the other hand, you have people like uh, Cecilia Tamori, who was criticizing you in a Politico article the other day. And, you know, what she said that it's it's unethical, this framing that you have that effectively discounts deaths by people who had the vaccine available and chose not to take it. I guess the question is, that, does anyone have expertise on this point? I mean, Cecilia Tamori has a, has a PhD in anthropology. You are a prominent journalist at the New York Times. This is sort of why I ask about the public opinion survey stuff, because it seems to me like this is a question of how does the public feel about these sorts of ethical questions? That's what would drive the public policy. I don't think anybody has particular expertise to say, I mean, maybe a religious leader if you're religious, but it's, it seems to me like this is fundamentally not an expert question, but it's a question that is an important input in trying to figure out what we should be doing at this specific moment. Yes, I think that's a really important frame. I mean, there are people who have expertise in this. They're not necessarily public health experts or, or someone who happens to have a PhD. Um, my guess is most of the experts in this do have PhDs. But I would be fascinated to hear a medical ethicist who has thought about historical analogies kind of talk about what have been the ways that societies have in the past have grappled with precisely the dilemma that you just laid out, right? In which one group of people is voluntarily accepting higher risk to themselves and then either asking for concessions from the rest of society or having some third party saying they deserve concessions. So I do think, I mean, almost every question, I think expertise is worth, as you said, making it an input. But I also think that this isn't one of these, most of these questions are this. It's not like if we only find the one most expert person, we will have the answer, right? This isn't like a question in which we're trying to figure out what the position of the Catholic Church is. And if we get to the Pope, we've got the answer by definition, right? And so I put significant weight on public opinion. It is not the final word, right? If we always made public opinion in the moment the final word, we wouldn't have had integrated schools in the 1950s. So I'm not saying public opinion always gets the last word. It's not clear to me we would have entered World War II, right? So uh, I'm not saying public opinion gets the last word, but in a democracy, it has to be one of the important inputs, both because you, you legitimately respect the accumulated wisdom of society and assume that more often than not, it is correct. And also because in a democracy, if you don't respect public opinion, there's a good chance that uh, the people making policy are going to be kicked out for people who do. So I do think it's really important. And I do put weight on public opinion. I also, this is a really hard question, and I haven't written about it frontally yet, although I plan to at some point. I think this question of how we weight the fact 
the, the bulk of the, of the pandemic costs are falling on people who are voluntarily choosing to expose themselves to it. I think that has to affect our decisions. And the reason why it does is I would flip it. Those people who are doing that are imposing large costs on the rest of us, right? So if you have anyone in your life who is immunocompromised, or who is in their 60s or 70s or 80s, or who has other health conditions, even if the risks are somewhat small for those people if they're vaccinated, they are higher than they need to be because of the millions of Americans who have not gotten vaccinated. And so I just, it's really hard to me to see the ethical argument of the rest of us as a society owe a debt to people who are exposing us to risk, and we then have to impose large costs involuntarily on children and particularly on children of color and low-income children because of what the unvaccinated people are doing. I just think that's, it. to me, it's a good example of how some people are trying to solve for COVID rather than trying to solve for societal health. And if you just try to solve for COVID, you know what you end up doing? You end up ignoring a lot of young people. You end up ignoring a lot of kids. And because of the shape of the unvaccinated, you end up really focusing your ethical concerns on older white people. And I think many of the people making those arguments are political liberals, so they would they would hate that. But that's, I think, essentially what they're doing without meaning to do it. But then isn't the flip side of that, I mean, when you look at public opinion, if you see stronger support for certain interventions from people who are not white, which I think we have seen at various times around schools uh, through this process. And then the other thing is, you know, you can poll today about masks in schools and you will get above water polling for it. And so I guess, you know, you can look at public opinion and you could say, you know, does the public support this policy that I think is incorrect because they have an analytical error about what masks in schools, what their actual costs and benefits are? Or does the public have a different value set than I have that, that maybe I need to honor? And similarly, when you're looking at those differences across groups, I mean, I think you, you point correctly at certain, you know, observed differential costs. But I think, you know, there's also a question of what sort of weight to put on differences in public opinion, if you think those differences in public opinion are, are real and accurately measured. I mean, again, I think that, you know, all of these are fundamentally questions of values. So I'm not looking to you to have the, the one right answer. I, ju- I just think it ends up being a fairly complicated analytical question. And I I mostly didn't talk about public opinion in that answer. I I think the strongest argument for this is not actually public opinion. Um, And you're right, public opinion is very complicated on on the virus. I agree with both of the statements uh, that you just made, that there is significant support for masks in schools, and that there has been throughout the pandemic more support uh, among communities of color for things like closing schools. That that second one is just really hard to grapple with because we know that the damage to kids of color has been the largest. Uh, I mean, we just know that empirically. You can look at what kids are, are learning, and unless you reject the idea that learning matters, um, that's just a bad thing for racial equality in our country. It's a it's a really tricky thing. The thing about public opinion that I probably find most depressing is the uh, fact that there's greater support for mask mandates than vaccine mandates. And wherever you are on the political spectrum, whether you think there should be both or whether you think there should be neither, there's just no scientific justification in my mind for putting mask mandates ahead of vaccine mandates. And yet the support's higher for them. I mean, that's my gut feeling about it, too. But I think, you know, what it is, is the sort of the bodily integrity case against vaccine mandates always strikes me as kind of nonsense. It seems like such a minimal imposition on me. But, you know, if people feel that way, 
Um, I don't think it's entire. Uh, some of it is about misinformation about the effectiveness of the vaccines and, and that. But I think there is also a, you know, a genuine reluctance about the idea of the government obligating somebody to put a vaccine in their body. I think, you know, we're seeing some other, you know, play, in Europe, there are places where vaccine uptake is higher, but there's, you know, there, there aren't vaccine mandates, maybe just because they're not necessary. But I think because of this sense, and it, it, it's, I don't know, I just like, I, I try to be a little bit humble about what people's values are, if what we're doing, and it's sort of going back to the frame from the beginning, if, if the sort of role that you're trying to play necessarily involves a certain amount of aggregation of the preferences of the public, um, it seems like there has to be a certain amount of, you know, trying to meet the public where it is on those things. I want to turn, though, and ask about a different matter related to, to people pointing to the current death rate, which is that Omicron has put us in a, in a very odd numerical situation where the seriousness of COVID as a disease has gone down, both because of a change in the virus and a change in the responses that we have available to the virus, including significantly higher vaccination rates. You've also had an, just an enormous number of cases, and those have added together to a fairly high death number. What is your sense of the likely trajectory of the pandemic over the next few months in terms of the death rate? I, I think that there are two ways to think about the next several months. One that we know a lot about and one that we know very little about. So let me start with the one we know a lot about, which is the next few weeks. Um, there has been a, a really consistent, not perfect, but really consistent pattern throughout this pandemic in the United States, which is hospitalizations lag case trends by somewhere between zero days and seven days. So typically, when cases start to rise, hospitalizations will start rising within a week. When cases start to fall, hospitalizations will start falling within a week. Deaths, the lag is more like three weeks. And uh, according to the the official numbers, which let's be clear are not perfect, right? They are not; those are the PCR tests, they're the formal tests, uh, they're not the home antigen tests that never get reported. Uh, testing volume can change over time, but in general, they've been a pretty good directional guide, even if they've always been a huge undercount of cases. Cases peaked, I believe, according to the New York Times data on January fourteenth, which is you know just a little bit more than than three weeks ago, and sure enough. Deaths started declining a couple days ago. I think the best thing to do is use the seven-day average because there's a, a really strong daily effect. Not a lot of deaths are reported over the weekend. So everything I'm referring to there is seven-day averages. So I think that there's every reason to expect that deaths are going to fall and probably fall sharply over the next three weeks. That basically you can think of deaths for a three-week period as being baked in to what cases did over the previous ones. Over time, this relationship can change because of treatments and stuff like that, but in a short term. So that, that would be shocking, not impossible, because at this point we should know that shocking things can happen. It would be shocking if deaths did not decline really substantially over the next few weeks. Beyond that, it's just really hard to know because I agree with you when you look at logically, we've got a huge, huge increase in natural immunity just over the last few weeks. Vaccination immunity is actually tricky because as a country, we've been so slow on boosters that waning immunity actually may mean that day to day, we're not actually getting more vaccine immunity, but it's not changing horribly. And so you put those two things together and it sort of seems hard to see how we could have another massive surge in the next month or two, but there's always the possibility of a new variant. And so I would assume that deaths are and hospitalizations are likely um, to fall really substantially over the next couple of weeks. And after that, I think the most likely scenario is that cases will probably, I mean, I would basically assume that we're going to have cases kind of bouncing around. That's probably the baseline scenario. 
But it's not out of the question that they would absolutely plummet. It's not out of the question that we get a new variant that pushes them back up. There's been an assumption, including an assumption by me, a, a lot of places along the way that, you know, we, we have to get back to normal at some point. And the question is, what needs to be done before we can get back to normal? Um, and, you know, when the what amount of time it's reasonable to do various interventions before we're back to normal. But it feels to me like to some extent that's, you know, that, that that's trying to steal a base where you can have changes to conditions in the world that require permanent changes in individual and societal behavior. And, you know, if COVID is going to be around forever, which I expect it will be, um, there are ways to envision that, that, you know, that's just like some other endemic respiratory disease. And, you know, with a combination of vaccines and treatments and natural immunity, we get to a point where the risk profile associated with it is similar to other things that we have much, uh, uh, much lighter touch interventions in order to address. But that's an assumption, right? Is it possible to imagine a world in which the value judgments of the public in order to maximize what they are looking for, you would need permanent change rather than return to normal, which is sort of assumed as the, the political endpoint. Yeah, that, that I think is probably right. I also think it's possible that these value judgments might be reflections of inertia uh, or rather than some carefully considered thing. Meaning you can imagine a situation in which we accepted the amount of death and risk from flu without giving it ever a second thought. And then this pandemic comes and it dominates our life for two years or three years or who knows how long. And then after that, we have a fundamentally different attitude towards something like the flu or to this new flu. It's sort of, there's no rational explanation for why both our pre-COVID and post-COVID preferences could both exist, but they could both exist, right? We could have had a kind of our, our view of risk change. So I think that is possible. I think the thing that I would emphasize is there are very large costs to many of those changes. So, and I think we shouldn't just dismiss them. We should recognize, okay, we're deciding that we're going to accept these new large costs because we think it's better than the alternative. Do you include vaccine mandates in that in, in contexts where there were not ordinarily mandates for other kinds of vaccines? I mean, you've seen even Democratic Governor uh, Ned Lamont step back from a, a vaccine mandate for state workers in Connecticut. I think, you know, as we looked at, I've been a booster of vaccine mandates through most of this process, but I think there have been two things that changed that change the cost benefit on that. One is increasing signs that you're going to need not just a third dose, but sort of on, ongoing boosters on some schedule that increase the both the, you know, the direct cost and then also the indirect cost of you people feel like you're imposing on them more and are more likely to object. And then also the the greater breakthrough rates that we saw with Omicron. It seemed to me like those both push against the cost benefit on vaccine mandates. Do you see do you see a world ongoing where you have to prove vaccination to get into a restaurant or where you have to prove vaccination to work in a non-healthcare industry? I mean, the Supreme Court has ruled on the second of those questions, right? So I, I don't expect the legality. Yeah, the legality. But it, but since they've ruled on it, it's kind of not an option, right? Well, uh, states can impose the states can impose it, right? That's fair. Um, uh, I'm quite sympathetic to vaccine mandates, but I also, your description before of trying to take seriously people's opposition about having a needle put in them and the government telling them they have to have it, I, I also, I get that, right? I get why people have that. Now, we have vaccine mandates, as many, many people have pointed out, and we have them for children, right? So we have them for the most vulnerable members of our society. So I don't see 
how we're blazing any new ground here with vaccine mandates. I think it's really unfortunate that it looks like vaccine mandates have become so politicized and the political right is so opposed to them that we are likely to actually see weakening support for vaccine mandates that we had that people were not complaining about before. I think that it would be better if we had widespread vaccine mandates for the total well-being of society. But it's clear that many people disagree with that, including people who are very happy to get the vaccine, right? I mean, you look at the polling data, it's it's actually the, the sort of obvious undercurrent of what we were just talking about. There are significant numbers of people who've been vaccinated and oppose vaccine mandates. It's got to be something like 30% of the population. That sounds like it might be right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've actually, yeah, I've got the cross tabs, but I don't have them in front of me. But that sounds yeah. ballpark, right? And so I think that we're probably not going to get there. Now, I am sufficiently awed by the power of the vaccines, and I mean that in an empirical sense, that I am not um, bereft about a world in which some people are not vaccinated, but I and my loved ones are. I don't think it's the best situation. I really don't. But it really isn't that different from what we already had. When you look at the risks to um, to you, when you look at the risk that COVID presents to, to a vaccinated person, to a boosted person, they really are very similar to lots of other risks that we accept, like the flu and, and some other things. So yeah, it's an additive risk, so it's not great. But there's a lot in the public discussion, particularly from the political left, there's a lot of, but what about the immunocompromised and what about the elderly? And that's true, but it's also true about the flu. And it's also true about nearly every illness we have in society. It's not that COVID is particularly bad for them relative to the rest of us. It's that any illness is bad if your immune system is weakened and your body is weakened. And so I wish we were going to live in a world with universal vaccination. I'm very comfortable with vaccine mandates, given the history, given that we already had them. But I don't think we are. And I think the good news is you can still protect yourself enormously with the vaccines. And if you want to go even further and put on a medical mask, you can do that too. What, what interesting thing in, in what you said there about, you know, the, the what about the immunocompromised? What about, uh, it, it, these, these are questions, go, going back to the beginning, these are questions of values about what amount of weight you put on what amount of risk accrues to different segments of the population. And one frustration that I've had that I think a lot of members of the public had is that as we've watched experts debate among themselves, debate with journalists, debate with you. It's hard to figure out where the values uh, disagreements end and the the factual disagreements begin. And particularly with a complicated issue like this, where there is divergence in expert opinion on a lot of issues, where there's a lot of genuine uncertainty, things that people are, you know, they're making forecasts about, they don't really know. It's fairly easy to pick the set of facts or analyses or expert claims that you rely on to shade toward a policy agenda that is more amenable to your value set than to somebody else's value set. I think the experts do this. I think lay people do this too. Um, I don't know whether you think that you do it, whether it's possible to completely avoid doing that. Um, but what do you? What does that mean for members of the public who are really trying to figure out, you know, what needs to be done to achieve what I want here? When it's so hard to separate those value judgments from the factual claims. I've never figured out the best language to describe this phenomenon, but I think it's a really important phenomenon, and I hope one day I will, or you will, or someone else will. There are many questions that we were very comfortable dealing with 0% or 100%. So something's either right or it's wrong. We're also kind of comfortable dealing with 50-50, right? You know, one side says X, the other side says Y, we're not sure which is right. 
we really struggle with 70-30 and 90-10 and 15-85. And that's unfortunate because many, many things in life are not 100 nothing or 50-50. And I think your question makes me think about that because I agree with what you said. It's often experts disagree all the time, right? Do experts favor mask mandates in school? Yes and no, right? That's the answer to that question. And we see all the time people cherry picking the experts and the studies they want to make their case. And I would encourage everyone to be skeptical about that. But I also would say don't go to the nihilist place of, well, there's no such thing as as a fact, right? And you know, we can all pick our experts on climate change and maybe it's happening or maybe it's not, right? Or maybe communism works and maybe it doesn't. And <laughs> and and so I think that you're making a really important point there, but I would just tell people, don't think that everything is a 50-50 issue, right? It is true that there are often divides, but it's often true that the weight of the evidence often, often lines up more strongly for one argument than another. And I do think in terms of tips for people who are not journalists or academics, I think logic is an underused tool. And I think too often people are saying, wait, is there a peer-reviewed study that proves this point? And it's okay, if there is, we should take that seriously. But listen to the argument that people are making and ask yourself if it made sense. When early on in the pandemic, the CDC and other experts told us not to wear masks, it didn't make any logical sense, <laughs> right? There's a reason doctors and nurses wear masks in hospitals. There's a reason why societies in Asia that have been battling contagious viruses a lot recently Put a lot of emphasis on mass. Use logic. Ask yourself, where does the evidence line up? And, and recognize that people, all of us, are going to more heavily weight evidence that fits our priors, but that every question is not simply a coin flip and you actually can find useful knowledge. And often logic is your best tool for sorting through who's full of it and who's actually saying stuff that makes sense. Let's leave it there for this week. David Leanhart writes the morning newsletter for the New York Times. Thank you so much, David. Thanks a lot for having me, Josh. If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. You can find it at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our thoughtful, very serious community. Please consider supporting the Very Serious podcast and newsletter as a paying subscriber because your subscription directly funds this podcast and the newsletter. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo as in mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week.